Hey everyone, this is Crystal from the Spooky Barber Babes. Welcome to today's episode. Um, so a little recap of some stuff. So over the next coming couple of months, I'm going to have out as much content as possible on a weekly basis. I'm trying to get some YouTube episodes scheduled as well and get Brianna in on a couple episodes. But currently, I know our posting schedule was going to be every Tuesday, but just to make things a little bit easier, our new schedule will be every Thursday at 8 a.m. We'll start off with a new episode weekly, um, but here are some weeks that I will be taking a break um, just because it's, at least for next month, I will not have an episode out the week before Halloween. Just either um, I'll have something pre-recorded out, but there will be nothing new coming out that week. And that's the 27th of October. Um, and then obviously there will be nothing on Thanksgiving and probably nothing right before Christmas, um, the week before Christmas, just because holiday times get a little hectic and crazy. But as of now, we are all good. Uh, I will also have, if you follow us on Instagram, there will be a um, episode guide for the rest of the year coming out later this week uh, once Instagram stops being weird and, you know, crazy for me. Um, but yeah, so on today's episode, I am going to be talking about, um, it's, I caught interest in this because of the second movie, um, The Town That Dreaded Sundown. This is movie adaptations of the Moonlight Murders that happened in Texarkana back in 1946. Now, there are two movies. Uh, one came out, uh, I want to say in the 60s, and the other one came back out in the early 2010s. I'll get into that a little later. But um, it was actually the second movie that made me look into it to see like, okay, does this have any true story behind it? And it very much did. And let's just say this is a little hmm, interesting to say the least. Um, but yeah, so before we get started, you're going to get a little quick ad break and then I'll be right back. Alrighty. Welcome back. Time to get started. So over a span of 10 weeks in Texarkana was plagued with murder and an unknown killer on the loose. Paranoia and panic caused by local media outlets led to some chaos within the residents. Now, if you're not familiar with this case, which some people aren't, all the attacks had occurred at nighttime, but only on the weekends between February 22nd and May 3rd of 1946. Now, this killer targeted male-female pairs. And I think they're, like, I'll get into, like, my mindset with this later on in, in the uh, episode. But... These attacks spanned across multiple locations in the Texarkana region, Lover's Lane, or on quiet stretches of road on the Texas side. One attack occurred even at an isolated farmhouse in Arkansas. 
mass media coverage, both nationally and internationally, managed to put about a state of panic during the summer of 1946 due to the fandom not being caught. Stores were sold out of guns, ammunition, locks, and other items to protect the home. And it was even stated that, and I'll get into this a little later, that the youths in the area tried to bait and ambush the killer. Now, that is something to keep in mind because I'll be talking about that a little bit later. Um, but right now, we're going to break into the beginning. So the first attack occurred on February 22nd at around 11.45 p.m. on a Friday night. Jimmy Hollis, age 25, and his girlfriend, Mary Jean LeRae, age 19, were parked on a secluded road known as Lover's Lane, having just seen a movie together. The area was approximately 300 feet away from the last row of city homes. Around 11.55, a man wearing a white cloth mask, which looked like a pillowcase with just eye holes cut into it, and approached Hollis's side of the vehicle and pointed a flashlight into the window. Hollis told the man, you got the wrong person, to which the man then replied, I don't want to kill you, fellow, so do what I say. Hollis and Larry were, Larray, sorry, I'm not even sure it's how to pronounce it, honestly, my bad. They were ordered out of the driver's side of the vehicle. The man then ordered Hollis to take off his goddamn britches, which Hollis complied. The masked man then hit Hollis in the head twice with the butt end of the pistol that he was holding. Larray later told investigators that she believed Hollis was shot because of how loud the sound was. And, but luckily he was not. Instead, he actually had a skull fracture and she heard the pistol fracturing his skull. Larray showed the man Hollis's wallet to prove that he was broke since she assumed that this guy was just trying to rob them. Instead, the man hit her with the pistol and told her to stand. When she did, he then told her to run. Now, this is a little weird. When she tried to run, she was trying to go to like a ditch that was close to where she was at. He ordered her instead to run up the road. Now, Lorraine noticed a vehicle parked on the side of the road, but she found it empty. And once she, you know, turned around, she found the attacker again in her face. The man asked her why she was running, to which she replied, you told me to. He called her a liar and hit her again with the pistol. This time, he then sexually assaulted her with the barrel of his gun. After the assault, Lorraine ran half a mile to a nearby home, banging on the door, awakening the residents who then phoned police. Hollis later gained, gained consciousness and was able to alert a passing motorist who also phoned the police. Within about 30 minutes, Bowie County Sheriff W.H. Bill Presley and three other officers arrived at the scene of the attack, but the man had already left. Larry was hospitalized for minor injuries and was held overnight, whereas Hollis was hospitalized for several days to recover from multiple skull fractures. Now, sadly, the couple gave conflicting reports of the attacker. Larry claimed to have seen under the mask and that it was a light-skinned African-American, whereas Hollis said it was a tanned white man around 30 years old, stating he couldn't distinguish the man's features due to being blinded by the flashlight. 
The only thing the two agreed on was that the man was six feet tall. Law enforcement, however, repeatedly challenged Larray's account of the incident and believed that she and Hollis knew the identity of the attacker and that they both were covering for them. Now, I think that's a little messed up that the police assumed that they were covering for the man that attacked them. I kind of find that bullshit, to be honest with you. But, needless to say, that was done and over with. They moved on. It was considered an isolated incident. Now, little over a month later, our second attack happened. Only this time, this is our first double murder. On the morning of Sunday, March 24th, 1946, Richard L. Griffin, age 29, and his girlfriend of only six weeks, Polly Ann Moore, who was 17, were found dead in Griffin's vehicle by a passing motorist. The motorist saw the vehicle parked on Lover's Lane, 100 yards south of U.S. Highway 76 West in Texas. The person initially thought that the couple had just fallen asleep in the vehicle and just pulled over because they were tired. Griffin, however, was found on his knees between the front seats with his head resting on his crossed hands with his pockets turned inside out. Polly was found laid out face down on the back seat. Now, evidence suggests that she was placed there after being killed on a blanket outside of the vehicle. Richard had been shot twice while inside the vehicle and both victims had been shot once clean in the back of the head more so think execution style, but both were fully clothed. No signs of sexual assault or anything like that. Um, on at least from what I was able to find no sexual assault. Now there was a patch of blood soaked dirt that was on the outside of the vehicle that suggested to officers on the scene that the couple had been murdered outside of the vehicle and then placed inside the vehicle. Police found congealed blood covering the running boards on the car, and it had actually flowed like flowed back into the car door. A .32 caliber casing was also found, possibly ejected from a pistol wrapped in a blanket. No reports that uh, either Griffin or Moore was examined by a pathologist. I couldn't find anything along that to see, like, if they were drugged or anything like that. Uh, there was a local rumor that said that Moore had been sexually assaulted, but more modern reports that came out later refuted that claim and that it was stated as just a rumor. Now, not even a month later, our third attack, which is our second double murder, happened on Sunday, April 14th at around 1.30 in the morning. Paul Martin, 17 years old, picked up Betty Jo Booker, 15 years old, from a musical performance at the VFW Club at West 4th and Oak Street. Martin's body was found five hours later at 6.30 in the morning, lying on its left side by the northern edge of North Park Road. There was blood found on the other side of the, of the road by a fence. He had been shot four times, once through the nose, once through the ribs from behind, once in the right hand, and once through the back of the neck. Talk about overkill. What I'm seeing, at least from, you know, thinking motion-wise, maybe he, he might have been running from his attacker, just trying to get out of there. However, 
Two miles away from where they found Martin's body at around 11.30 a.m., a search party located Booker's body behind a tree lying on her back, fully clothed. Her body was poised with... I said poised. <laughs> her body was posed with her right hand in the pocket of the button overcoat she was wearing. She had been shot twice, once through the chest and once through the face. A .32 automatic Colt pistol was the weapon used, the same as the first double murder. Martin's car was found three miles from Booker's body and 1.55 miles away from his own body. It was parked outside Spring Lake Park with the keys still inside. It is unclear of who was shot first or what had happened. Sheriff Presley and Texas Ranger Captain Manuel Gonzalez stated that after examination of both bodies that the pair had put up a terrific struggle. A friend of Martin, Tom Albrighton, had stated that Martin had no enemies and that he did not believe an argument had occurred between the victims, basically saying that, no, they didn't do this to each other kind of thing, which would have been a horrible thing to even think. But remember the name Captain? Roger, uh, Ranger Captain Manuel Gonzalez because honestly when I start talking about him later it's mm, yeah we'll, we'll get there <laughs> so <clears throat> that states us to our fourth attack which was the fifth murder on Friday May 3rd sometimes sometime around 9 p.m. Virgil Starks 37 and his wife Katie Starks 36 were inside their home that was on a 500-acre farm off Highway 67 East, roughly 10 miles northeast of Texarkana. Virgil was in his armchair reading the newspaper when he was shot twice in the back of the head through a closed double glass window. Now, Katie was in another room, but she heard glass shattering and went to go check out the noise. When she entered the room, she saw Virgil stand up and then slumped back into the chair. Once she realized he was dead, she ran to the wall phone to call the police. However, she was then shot twice in the face from the same broken window. She did fall, but managed to regain her footing. She tried to reach the pistol in the other room, but was blinded by her own blood. Upon hearing the shooter in the back of the house, she ran barefoot out the front door and across the street to where her sister and brother-in-law's home was. However, neither of them were home, so she ran to another neighbor's home. And the neighbor was A.V. Prater. She managed to gasp out Virgil's dead before collapsing. Prater shot a rifle into the air, summoning other neighbor, Elmer Taylor, who he told to get his car. Taylor got the vehicle, and he and the Prater family took Katie to Michael Mager Hospital, now Miller County Health Unit. Starks was questioned in the operating room by Miller County Sheriff W.E. Davis. He became the head of the investigation in regards to uh, the Stark case. Four days later, Katie was questioned once again and discounted a rumor that was going around that Virgil had heard a car outside their home several nights in a row and quote feared being killed um it doesn't really say who uh had started that rumor but supposedly that's what was said which doesn't really you know make sense to me but it's like i guess small town people like to talk 
I, I don't know. I didn't grow. I mean, I grew up in a small town, but it wasn't that small. Now, here's where things get interesting. This is kind of like the breakdown of the investigation and the investigators who were a part of it. Now, there were multiple investigators and officers involved in these attacks and murders at all different levels of authority from city, county, state to federal. Notable investigators include William H. Bill Presley, born from 1895 and passed away in 1972. He was the Bowie County Sheriff, which was the first lawman on the scene of the first three attacks. Then up, we have Jackson Neely Jack Reynolds, who also passed away in 1966, 20 years later. Uh, he was the Texarkana, Texas Chief of Police, and he was among the first called to the two scenes of the double murders. W.E. Davis, who was the head of the Stark investigation in Miller County. Then you have Max Andrew Tackett. He was born in 1911, and from what I could tell, he was the only person to live a really long life. He made it until 2008. He was the Miller County Sheriff's Deputy, or Chief Sheriff's Deputy, one of the lead investigators. He was the go-to man for coordinating the case and kept personal case files, which survived the official files, which went missing. He was the last surviving lawman from the case and was often contacted by interesting parties, including TV producers, to get, you know, their, their side of the story. Now, hmm, this one. So Manuel Trezis Lobe Wolf, Lobe Wolf, I'm not too sure that was, Gonzalez, was born in 1891 and passed away in 1977. He was the Texas Ranger captain who became the public face of the investigation, holding numerous press conferences. And let me tell you, things get a little bit interesting with this man. He was criticized as a showman who presented the work of other officers as his own and was known to spend a lot of time with female reporters. Five years after the murders, he left the Rangers to become a technical consultant to the entertainment industry. Now, no arrests were made in regards to the first attack for, of Hollis and Larry. Uh, Larry returned to Texarkana after the Griffin Moore double murders in hopes of helping link the cases together and identifying the killer. Sadly, the Texas Rangers, liked, like the original officers, questioned her story and insisted that she knew who attacked her and Hollis. Officers pretty much refused to connect the Hollis and Larry attacks to the Griffin Moore murders. It wasn't until May 11th, the day after the Texarkana Gazette published an interview with Larray, that Presley and Reynolds then called on the public to immediately report anyone who basically had an unexplained absence of the night of the four attacks. So they didn't want to believe this woman about her accounts of the attacks and things like that. It wasn't until the paper was like, oh, you were attacked and they're not acknowledging it, but because you survived, it's basically like, oh, you survived it. So there's no way that, you, that we can connect this. Um, honestly, I think the two of them were a practice run for the guy. And I don't know. I think they just got lucky. I don't think they knew who it was. And I think it's pretty messed up that the police were just like, nope, nope. We believe you know who it is. Tough. It's not, not cool. Now. Now. 
because of this call to action to basically call and report on your neighbors, there was over 200 people questioned in regards to the case. And basically the same number of those leads were all false. There were three people, however, that were found with bloody clothing, but were later cleared of the suspicion. The Martin Booker murder saw friends, family, and acquaintances, along with suspects, questioned at the Bowie County building by officers who were working in 24-hour relays. The furthest that a suspect had came was from 100 miles away. Now, remember how I told you we'd get into about, you know, the teens baiting? So here's part one of that. Texas Ranger Captain Manuel Gonzalez tried baiting the Phantom with teenagers that he recruited to sit as decoys in parked cars while officers waited close by. Officer ha officers had also volunteered to be decoys as well, either with real partners or with mannequins. Some officers also would hide out in the trees at Spring Lake Park in hopes of catching him. Now, this is only part one of that because there is more that I will get into in a little bit. But after the Stark murder and attack, officers from the entire area were called in to help with the investigation with setting up roadblocks on Highway 67 East. People that were driving on the highway the night of the murder, along with several man men found in the area, were detained for questioning. By May 5th, two days after the slayings, 47 officers were working to solve the murder. And for the next week and a half, more help kept arriving. May 9th, a mobile radio station arrived with 20 Arkansas state police officers and a fleet of 10 prowl cars with two-way radios were brought in to help coordinate growing investigations. On May 11th, a teletype machine was installed at the Bowie County Sheriff's Office to help connect with law enforcement in Texas. This way they could do, you know, out-of-state communication. Uh, there is an unofficial working theory that it was, quote, due to sex mania, due to the amount of large sums of money, and Katie Stark's purse not being taken. So because there was no, there really wasn't a motive behind it. No, like, none of, nobody was robbed. But in the, and the only person that claimed a sexual assault had happened on them was Lorraine, but she said it was with a gun, not with, like, the person himself didn't, like, assault her. Now, March 30th, police posted a $500 reward in hopes to get new information that would lead to an arrest, but instead it produced over 100 false leads. And then pretty much things went cold until a few days after the Martin Booker murders, the reward was bumped up to $1,700. On the night of the Stark murders, it rose up to $7,025, with it passing $10,000 within the following 10 days. There was some hesitation yet again to linking the Stark murder to the other crimes, and by November 1948, Authorities no longer considered Virgil's murder and Kate's, Katie's attack to be connected to the two double murder cases. They came to the conclusion based on the difference in weapons. Virgil was shot with a .22 and Davis believed that the weapon was an automatic rifle. Now, okay, he switched up areas and switched up, you know, weapons. It's not unheard of. <laughs> 
So, but yet again, so they tried saying, yes, the Virgil case was a part of, you know, the Moonlight murders. And then like, oh no. And then, but most people in the area still say yes. It's like the cops didn't seem to really care about the first attack. And they didn't want to connect the first or the, or the final attacks to the double murders. They look, seemed like they wanted to keep it separate. Now, the public's reaction to this was insane. Initially, the Griffin War murders were considered a, quote, isolated incident, but raised some public concern. This was all due to the fact that the authorities failed, they didn't want to, publicly connect the Hollis Larray attacks to the murders while the Phantom Killer was active. With the Martin Booker murders, however, being connected shortly after, this greatly alarmed the public to the possibility of there being an active serial killer. The murder of two church-going teens shocked the public. Booker was a very popular junior, a sorority member, officer of her high school band, and a winner of scholastic literacy and musical prizes, and a former Little Miss Texarkana. Her high school ended classes early on the day of the funeral, so hundreds of the children's classmates could attend their funerals. Around this time, businesses had found themselves placing curfews put in place to keep people off the streets at night. And also during this time is when local media dubbed the killer the Phantom Killer. Following Virgil's murder, however, the area had reached hysteria with people reporting everyone they saw as a prowler and officers ended up going out to calls made out of panic, excitement, wild imagination, and wild hysteria. It didn't help that the Texarkana Gazette published on May 5th that the killer might strike again at any moment, any place, and at any one. Bin businesses had found themselves selling high amounts and even selling out of locks, guns, ammunition, window shades, and Venetian blinds. They saw increased sales in window sash locks, screen door hooks, night latches, and other protective items. People were even taking out newspaper ads looking for guard dogs. This area used to be a very open place where people wouldn't, you know, they were known to leave their doors unlocked, windows unlocked, even sleeping with the windows open at night. Now, people were nailing sheets over their windows, using screen door bracers as a window guard, and some even nailing their windows shut. It was mass hysteria at its finest, with the media showing the increased police activity everywhere. A prime example of media mass hysteria at its finest. This caused Texarkana to become a very, very dangerous place. When reporting to police call, well, to calls, police had to arrive with their sirens on and stand in their headlights and have to shout their announcement of their arrival as to not be shot by scared and nervous homeowners. Now, again, Texas Captain, Texas Ranger Captain Manuel Gonzalez didn't help at all. And instead, he fed into the hysteria, stating that gun owners should, quote, oil up their guns and see if they're loaded. And to, quote, not hesitate to shoot if they feel necessary to use them. This put police and citizens alike all at risk of being shot just for walking to their own homes or walking past someone's home. The fear was so significant that it spread as far as Hope, Lufkin, Magnolia, and even Oklahoma City, where they all saw increases in gun and axe sales as well. 
Once there wasn't a murder or attack for three weeks, the fear in Texarkana slowly began to dissipate. However, that concern was still there until after the summer, three months after Virgil's murder. Now, media dubbed the murders as the Moonlight Murders, although the first two murders occurred a week after the full moon and the final attack occurred during the time of the new moon. Now, there were some rumors and vigilantism, I can now talk today, uh, that did occur during this whole mess. Now, during the investigation, rumors were spreading wildly through the town, not just from person to person, but also in the media. Texas Ranger Captain Gonzalez held a press conference on April 18th, stating that the rumors circulating among the public and newspapers were, quote, a, a hindrance to the investigation and harmful to innocent persons. He had to stress again in a radio interview on May 7th, stating, Rumors only take away the police from the main route of the investigation. It is important that we capture this man that we cannot afford to overlook any lead, no matter how fantastic it may seem. Now, <laughs> agreed, a lot of this hysteria, people were turning in their neighbors over something Oh, they, they looked at you wrong. They were, they were walking suspicious or, oh, they may have been hiding a secret. You know, I mean, they literally, because of the mass hysteria in the area, I'm pretty sure this man could have been caught. Um, but I, because of all of this, he wasn't caught. Now the Texarkana Gazette editorial released a little snippet that I grabbed from March 27th, 1946. And it said, do not spread rumors. Chances are that the person listening will repeat your information and enlarge upon it, eventually requiring a detailed investigation by the officers, thereby perhaps pulling them off the true trail. Now, vigilantism. Hmm. This is where my... Uh, this is where I have issues with what the Texas Ranger did because he kind of spurred these people to um, do some crazy stuff. Now, during this time, many teams were taking it upon themselves to go out and try to trap the phantom themselves. While yes, Gonzalez had used some teens and parked them as decoys. He knew those teens and where they were parked. So there was officers around those teenagers. Do I like the fact that teenagers were used as bait? No, definitely not. But at least they had backup around them. So if something happened, they were safe. Now, however, there were many who teens who themselves would park on deserted roads in hopes to catch the killer themselves. Johnson and an Arkansas state trooper had been out patrolling a vacant road when they saw a vehicle parked and approached it. Luckily for them, and I mean luckily for them, they had announced who they were when they approached the vehicle. When asked if they weren't scared, the girl inside the vehicle stated that it was a good thing you told me who you were, as she re then revealed that she had pointed a .25 ACP pistol at him from the next, uh, from the time he arrived at the vehicle. So basically, he walked up and that girl already had a pistol on him ready to shoot. Now, on the evening... On the evening of May 10th, the Texarkana City Police were alerted to a vehicle that had been following a bus. After a three-mile chase, they shot out the tires and arrested C.J. Lauderdale Jr., a high school athlete. When asked why he was following the bus and did not pull over, he explained that he was unaware that they were police due to them being in an unmarked vehicle and that 
the reason he was following the bus was because he saw a suspicious passenger get on the bus from a private car. On May 12th, Texas Ranger Gonzalez gave a stern warning in the Gazette to the teenage sleuth saying, quote, it's a good way to get killed. Now, I agree. Doing stupid stuff, 100% a good way to get killed. Now, some stuff, some of the stuff I feel like I may be repeating myself a little bit, but it makes sense in the context. All about the killer, the quote, phantom killer. Now, again, this nickname wasn't given to the killer until after the Martin Brook, uh, Booker murder and the Texarkana Daily News, April 16th edition, had a headline that read, Phantom Killer Eludes Officers as Investigations of Slaying Pressed. The French page headline was continued on page two and continued with the headline reading, Phantom Slayer Eludes Police. A smaller title article was in the Texarkana Gazette on April 17th, reading, Phantom Slayer Still at Large as Probe Continues. J.Q. Mahaffey, executive editor of the Texarkana Gazette in 1946 said that managing editor Calvin Sutton had an acute sense of for the dramatic, which impelled him to ask if he could refer to the unknown murderer as the phantom. Mahaffey replied, why not? If the SOB continues to elude capture, he certainly can be called a phantom. Now, really the only description that we have obviously of the murder uh, was from Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jane Larry uh, Larray. And again, they couldn't even give a consistent information on the attacker. The only consistency that they had was that he was a male, six feet tall, and had wore a white pillowcase like mask that had cutouts for his eyes and mouth. Where Hollis described the man as being tanned white male under 30. Lorraine described the same encounter as a light-skinned African-American with no other descriptions to go off of. That's all authorities had to work with. It was generally assumed that all the attacks and murders were committed by the same person. But again, no way to tell except for, you know, the method of operation, a.k.a. the modus operandi. Established for the killer was that he attacked young couples in vacant and private areas just outside city limits using a 32 caliber gun. Although the caliber in Virgil Stark's murder was a 22, it is doubly by authorities mainly that the Phantom used the 22 caliber gun in that murder. Again, later on, they tried to say that, oh no, that wasn't it, but. His time frame was that of nights on the weekend with a cooling off period of three weeks between attacks. So something tells me since he only did it on the weekends, he was probably a regular normal guy that most people wouldn't have even thought to look at, which is like, hmm. So you're telling me that's serial killer that only works with nights on weekends. All right. So Something tells me this man could have had a family. I'm going to pause real quick and say I'm sorry if you guys hear a lawnmower. I think my neighbor decides every time I start recording that, you know, he needs to be outside mowing his lawn. I'm hoping that, like, you guys don't hear it. But if you do, I am so sorry. I cannot control my neighbors. <laughs> um, anyways, back on topic. 
The Texas Ranger Captain Gonzalez stated that he and his officers were dealing with, quote, a shrewd criminal who had left no stone unturned to conceal his identity and activities, and that the murderer's efforts were both clever and baffling. Further stating that the man they were hunting was a, quote, cunning individual who would go to all lengths to avoid apprehension. The night of the Stark murder at the scene, Presley said, quote, this killer is the luckiest person I have ever known. No one sees him, hears him in time, or can identify him in any way. Officers have said that the killer is apparently a maniac who is an expert with a gun. Survivor of the first attack, Jimmy Hollis, was quoted saying, I know he's crazy. The crazy things he said to me made, made me feel his mind was warped. Later, a psychologist at the Federal Correctional Institution in Texarkana, Dr. Anthony LaPalle, believed at the time that the killer was planning to continue to make unexpected attacks like the one to Virgil Starks on the outskirts of town. He believed that all the murders and attacks were made by the same person, mid-30s to 50s, supposedly motivated by a strong sexual drive and sadism. He also stated that a person committing these crimes are very intelligent clever, shrewd, and often not apprehended. His theory went on to say that the killer would not be afraid of the increase in the police activity, but was aware of the increased difficulty of attacking people on vacant roads, hence the shift to targeting at the farmhouse. LaPala continued that the person was probably leading a normal life, was unlikely a veteran and not necessarily a resident despite knowing the area very well. The attacks show evidence of deep planning. The killer works alone and most likely has told no one of his crimes and could either shift his crimes to a distant community or overcome the desire to assault and kill people. He did not, however, believe that the killer was African-American, stating that, quote, in general, Negroes are not that clever, end quote. Honestly, when I read that, that kind of pissed me off a lot. But I mean, I guess back in the day... Like, that's a normal comment for them, but, like, seriously? Some bullshit. Sorry. that, Like I said, that part really just pissed me off. I digress. Now, here's where we get into the suspect pool of the case. Now, there was about 400 suspects thanks to false leads and false confessions to police. According to Thackett, nine people confessed to being the Phantom, but none of their statements agreed with the facts or evidence. No suspects were apprehended regarding the, the Hollis-Laray case. 200 people were questioned thanks to false tips and leads and checked out with three suspects being taken into custody for bloody clothing, two of which were released due to satisfactory explanations. But the last suspect was held in Vernon, Texas for further investigation, but was later cleared. I'll be talking about him a little later. And those questionings came in during, right after the Martin Booker murders. So this guy literally has been, and I'm just going to say this from the beginning, he's been condemned. And I say this because if I'm correct, the movies condemned him. Um, there was a book that basically condemned this poor man. I mean, was he the best person to kind of peg with it? Yeah. Petty criminal. But you don't go from petty car theft to mass murder. <laughs> but 29-year-old car thief and counterfeiter Yule Swinney was arrested by Thackett in July, who was investigating car thefts after realizing that on the night of the Griffin Moore murders, 
A car had been stolen in the area, and a previously stolen car had been found abandoned. Thackett was able to kind of set up, like, contact the former car owner and kind of set up, like, a sting. Well, he arrested Swinney's wife, Peggy, when she came to collect the vehicle. Peggy then confessed in great detail that Swinney was the phantom killer and had killed Martin and Booker. Although over several police interviews, her story details had changed, police believed it was only because she was, quote, in fear of either incriminating herself or afraid of Swinney. Police, however, were able to independently verify some of the details from Peggy's confession, such as the location of victims' possessions where she said Yule discarded them. There was considerable circumstantial evidence against Swinney, but Peggy's confession was the most critical part of the case against him. However, Peggy later recanted her confession and was considered a, quote, unreliable witness and could not be compelled to testify against her husband. Authorities spent six months, six freaking months trying to validate Peggy's claims that her husband was the phantom killer. They found information that on the night of Booker and Martin's murders, the Swinneys were sleeping in their car under a bridge in San Antonio. Swinney was never charged with the murders, but instead tried and convicted of being a habitual offender as a car thief. Presley later stated in his 2014 book that Swinney was terrified that he was going to be charged for the murders, that he tried to plead guilty to the car theft charges, regardless that it was a charge that required a jury trial. He stated that it was basically a plea bargain, despite there being no actual formal agreement on file. Some articles claim that Peggy was Swinney's girlfriend, while others refer to him as wife. I'm not 100% sure, and honestly, I mean, if you're willing to throw your partner under the bus like that, just, I don't know, that's just some BS. Swinney was released on an appeal in 1973, and there are a couple different sources that say, you know, he got arrested later and died again, but I was able to find more information that he died in 1994 in a nursing home. Now, the book was called The Phantom Killer, Unlocking the Mystery of the Texarkana Serial Murders. And like I said, it basically convicted Swinney of the murders and concluded that he was the culprit. Now, this next suspect that they had, it's kind of interesting because this kid, and I, I say kid because he was 18, he came from a prominent family in Texarkana and a friend of his actually gave him an alibi for the night, but his name was Henry Booker Duty Tennyson, an 18 year old university freshman who died by suicide on November 4th, 1948, leaving behind cryptic instructions, which directed investigators to a suicide note in which Dennison confessed to the Booker Martin murders and the murder of Virgil Stark. He did have one connection to one of the victims, however, and that was Booker. He played trombone in the same high school band as Booker. However, they weren't friends. Investigators were unable to find any other evidence to link him to the murders aside from a random confession note. James Freeman later came out and gave him an alibi saying, at least for the night of the Stark murders, saying that they were playing cards that evening when they heard about the news of the attack on the radio. Now, these next few ones are literally shots in the dark. Next up on our suspect list is Ralph B. Bauman, 21-year-old ex-Army Air Force machine gunner who claimed to have awoken from a fatigue state. 
some type of weird mental state. Um, several weeks he was in this state um, and then he woke up on the day of Stark's murder with his rifle missing. He said that he heard about a suspect matching his description and hitchhiked to LA feeling like he was, quote, running from murder. On May 23rd, he told the LAPD that he thought that he might be the phantom stating, quote, I'm my own suspect. Police arrested him, but Texas Ranger Captain Gonzalez stated that several parts of his stories had little basis in fact. Bauman said that he'd been discharged from the Army Air Force for being psychoneurotic and had previously confessed to killing three people in Texarkana in a period of three days, which didn't match the timeline of the murders. Next up, we have a person with no name. Police had hoped that um, they would be able to find the saxophone that belonged to Booker uh, because she was playing it that night. It wasn't in the vehicle. They were kind of hoping that, you know, when it went missing the night of her murder, that they could find that the killer kept it as a memento. He inquired about how much, how he could go about selling the instrument, but became very evasive and ended up eventually fleeing from the store man manager. This was one of the men that was detained for the Booker Martin murders. Sadly, the man did not have the saxophone in his possession, but because they discovered bloody clothes in the hotel room that he was staying in, that was enough for him to be detained for several days of questioning. He was later released and the saxophone in question on October 24th, six months after her death. Then we have another crapshoot suspect, kind of just a wrong place, wrong time kind of thing. On May 8th, there was an announcement that a German prisoner of war had escaped. Now, he was already being hunted as just a matter of routine, you know, taken out kind of thing. So because he escaped, he did it. He became a suspect. He was described as a stocky 24-year-old, about 187 pounds, with brown hair and blue eyes. He stole a car from Mount Eda, Arkansas, and had attempted to buy ammunition in several eastern Oklahoma towns. Although police were still searching for him, it is said that he had just poofed and vanished in thin air. He was never recaptured, and to this day, they still don't know where he is. Well, day before that, on May 7th, a hitchhiker armed with a pistol carjacked and robbed a man, threatening to kill him, stating that he had killed five people in Texarkana, naming Martin and Booker. He continued to claim that he was not finished killing people, but Texas Ranger Captain Gonzalez said that police were very doubtful that the man was the phantom killer, noting that the killer had gone to great lengths to conceal his identity while the hitchhiker was basically boasting to a living witness. It went against the profile that they had for him. Now, again, there's a lot of suspects with no names. Um, we have two with a name, but this next one comes from Atoka County. And on May 10th, an Atoka, Oklahoma man assaulted a woman in her home, ranting that he might as well kill her because he had already killed three or four people and said that he was going to rape her. He then fled. A widespread search, including 20 officers and 160 residents, was, were conducted. And two days later, the police arrested the suspect, but did not believe this man to be the phantom killer. According to his story, there was no possible way for him to have been in Texarkana at the time of the Stark murder. So next up in the suspect pool is a someone by that goes by the name of Sammy, which is actually a pseudonym 
given to a longtime Texarkana resident with a good reputation. Um, the police were very reluctant to name him as a suspect. The only thing that really, I hate to say it, the only thing that got him even remotely seen as a suspect was because his vehicle's tire tracks were found across the road from Martin's corpse. He failed a polygraph test, so police decided to have him hypnotized by psychiatrist Travis Elliott. Elliott concluded that Sammy had no criminal tendencies, that he had pulled his vehicle to the side of the road just to urinate, and that he then went to visit a married woman with who he was having an affair with. Him withholding the details of the affair is what caused him to fail the polygraph test. Police kind of seemed relieved, but were able to confirm the details, and he was cleared as a suspect soon after. Again, random, but there was a taxi cab driver that became a major suspect in the Martin Booker murders because his cab was seen in the vicinity of the crime scene that morning. But again, cleared soon after, which it's like, okay, the dude was driving a freaking taxi cab. Who cares? Like, oh, now. This next one is a suspect, but he's claim like, this person is one of two things. He's either a suspect or he's another victim. Police kind of couldn't say. Coroner kind of said something different. And then just basically local rumors have just kind of ran with it. But on May 7th at around 6 a.m., the body of Earl Cliff McSpadden was found on the Kansas City Southern Railway tracks 60 miles north of Texarkana near Ogden. The body's left arm and leg had been severed off by a freight train only half an hour earlier. The coroner's verdict stated death at the hands of persons unknown, and he was, quote, dead before being placed on the railroad tracks. Because Earl's murder is still unsolved, locals have speculated that McSpadden was the Phantom Sticks victim. However, there is a very prominent rumor claiming that he was actually the Phantom and killed himself. This rumor, however, goes against the coroner's reports that he was dead before even being anywhere near the railroad tracks. Now, moving on. In 1977... Arkansan Charles B. Pierce produced the R-rated horror film called The Town That Dreaded Sundown, with the timeline reading, In 1946, this man killed five people. Today, he still lurks the streets of Texarkana, Arkansas. It starred Ben Johnson, Don Wells, and Andrew Prine. There was a lot of people who disputed the accuracy of the movie, even though it was supposedly based on the Moonlight Murders. In 1996, the Texarkana Gazette released a 24-page special edition called The Phantom at 50, and the Prime was re-released in 1996 and again in 2003 by the Dallas Morning News. In 2014, there was a meta-sequel to the film of the same name, quote, The Town That Dreaded Sundown. This cast, and again, I was telling you right at the beginning of this, was actually the movie that got me into even researching this. But this cast included Addison Timlin, Trace Topri, Spencer Treat Clark, Gary Cole, Anthony Anderson, Ed Lauder, and Edward Herman. It was supposed to be a remake, but instead became a sequel with elements and references to the original. <clears throat> 
They filmed in Texarkana between June 17th of 2013 to June 20th, 2013. However, most of the filming took place in Shreveport, Louisiana. It was released on October 16th in 2014 and only grossed $120,459 by Orion Pictures for theater release, but was later released on video on demand by Bloomberg Productions. Now, in conclusion to this whole thing, these cases are still unsolved and are now considered cold cases. Even though these cases are unsolved and most likely the person responsible has passed away, the families of these victims still have to have closure. Although throughout my research, I was unable to find any connection between the victims besides of the fact of the place they lived. There's still, you know, people who deserve to like, they deserve what they deserve, you know, what they need. And it sucks that, you know, they're no longer getting the uh, attention because, you know, it's gone cold. I mean, hell, in 23 years, we'll be hitting 100 years since these murders happened. And it kind of sucks, truth be told. Um, now, I have a totally different theory because but again you can connect so many different murders and spree killers and serial killers that were not caught you can be like oh well what if they just moved what if they moved and elevated what if there's so many what ifs i mean hell if you really want to take a shot in the dark you know who's to say that this person didn't leave texarkana after you know getting away with four to five murders and decided to go on a bigger scale. Who's to say that they didn't move to New York? Who's to say that this isn't the Zodiac killer? Who's to say that this isn't the uh, Phantom Highway killer from DC? You know, you can continue to go, Oh, who is this? Who is this? Who is this? But I also, I hate to say it, with a lot of killers that aren't caught Usually later on, it's found out that it's someone in law enforcement. I mean, look at the Golden State Killer, law enforcement. Um, there was two officers who got booked for murder of a girl that in um, D.C. that I'm like working on a case with. And I'm just like, they and, and they even steered the direction of the Phantom, uh, the highway. Yeah. The Phantom Highway Killer. There we go. Too many phantoms in this. But um, they were, you know, part of the investigation team for that. And they were steering the direction of the case very wrong. So I just try to tell people to look at how the police act. Look at certain people that are trying to figure out different things. Um, and kind of shift things. Like, so honestly, I personally... I don't want to, I don't want to go putting out there that it might've been the Texas Ranger, but it could have been. I mean, he wanted to be the public face. He took, you know, front and center. He put teenagers at risk. And then in turn, that put even more teenagers at risk because now they're like, oh, well, he has teenagers out on stakeouts, so why can't I do it? That's how my brain works. My brain's like, oh, well, let, let me let me think. How can I, you know, 
could this person be connected to this person? But like I said, there, there's aside from where they all lived, there's no connection except for to one suspect and one victim. And by that, it's just a suspect of, okay, you confess, but why did you confess? That's my other thing. Like, how are you going to confess to a murder in a suicide note, but not give a reason why? Like, and then all those random people that confess to the murder, what for what reason? Why did you confess to a murder that you didn't commit? Like, and then it also makes you wonder, okay, out of all those confessions... Could they have actually gotten a real confession from the real killer and deemed it impossible? That's another thing that I'm kind of like, oh, okay, well, you know, maybe. I don't know. As this is where my brain goes when I when I do all this. Like, I fall down a rabbit hole of, you know... Who did it? Like, who the hell did it? I want to say we're coming up on 80 years. And this person's not caught. And if they're if they're right and it was somebody that was in their like 30s, like between 20s and 40s, the person's no longer here. You know, so that person literally got away with murder. And okay, if you don't want to connect the first attacks, who's to say it wasn't a woman? Everyone just assumes man because, you know, oh, the attacks were done by men. Uh, at least the Hollis and uh, Larray cases were done by a man. They had said it was a man. But who's to say it wasn't a woman? Everyone automatically goes, oh, it's got to be a guy. It's got to be a guy. Why? Who's to say it wasn't a woman who had an issue. I also think, you know, some people may have had issues with the fact that out of all the cases, except for Virgil Starks, you had three teenagers that were murdered. Three teenagers, a dude who was 29 dating a 17 year old. That could have enraged somebody. I don't know. Maybe that person was thinking that they were vigilante trying to save these teens but then why kill them there's so many what ifs when it comes to the unknown and the unsolved that it's just like what's the why <laughs> like truth be told what is the why but anyways i'm rambling at this point so i'm going to leave you with some food for thought which is what do you think do you think it could have been one of the cops involved or Maybe somebody that flew under the radar in the town. Do you think it was a vet? Or do you think it could have been somebody with law enforcement? I mean, I know the one uh, psychologist said that it could be a veteran. But who's to say it's a veteran of military and not a veteran of law enforcement? Or not even a veteran at all and somebody that was in active law enforcement at the time. I really, really want to know what you guys think about this one because this case has been rattling my brain for years and it took me a while to just kind of get the notion of, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. Um, but yeah, so if you're listening on Spotify or you're listening on Apple or however you're listening to this, 
Um, follow us over on Instagram. There will be an official uh, chat thread, um, chat post up probably around the same time this aired. So it should be up. If you're listening to it, it should be up. Follow us over at the Spooky Barber Babes on Instagram. And uh, as always, stay spooky.